good to be with you today. And uh, thank you, Tim, for filling in for Alex. Please keep Alex and your family in your prayers as he continues to fulfill the protocol and be back with us. I know he hates being gone, and we want him back, and so we're grateful for Tim for filling in. Also, um, keep Daniel, one of our other elders, here in your prayers as he's been deployed to our nation's capital as a National Guardsman. So keep his safety and the peace. That's what we pray for, right, that uh, we, we can live in peace. And so we ask the Lord for that, and so we're grateful for uh, those who serve. So keep the, those things in your prayers. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Spiritual Warfare Part 2, and we started and introduced this section last time, and so we're going to really get into it today. We just labeled this section over the next couple of weeks, Fleshly Weapons, Spiritual Weapons. And so we're back in this verse-by-verse study, so turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 10.1. Boldness and courage are not always apparent in the demeanor of servants of Christ, much like with Paul misinterpreted a lot of his spiritual gifts as weakness, and we see that uh, gentleness and meekness sometimes mistaken for weakness in the world, as well as the case for Martin Niemöller. You may be familiar with that name, a churchman during the time of uh, World War II. In late 1934, Adolf Hitler summoned German church pastors whom he considered weak and feckless to his Berlin office to berate them for insufficiently, he said, supporting his programs. Meekly, Martin Niemöller explained that he was concerned only for the welfare of the church and for the German people. Hitler disdained him, of course, and replied, you confine yourself to the church and I'll take care of the German people. Gently, Niemöller replied, uncertain of the outcome, but we too, as Christians and churchmen, have a responsibility towards the German people, and that responsibility was given to us by God, and neither you nor anyone in the world has the power to take that from us. Hitler was reported to have listened to that in silence, but that evening in his Gestapo raided Niemöller's parsonage, and a few days later a bomb exploded in the church. Uh, during the next few months and uh, several years that followed, Hitler had him closely watched by the secret police, thinking to terrify him. Finally, in June of 1937, he preached these words to his congregation, quote, We have no more thought of using our own power to escape the arm of the authorities than had the apostles of old. We must obey God rather than men, end quote. Uh, he knew he couldn't fight this battle with fleshly weapons, and he was soon arrested and placed in solitary confinement. His trial began on February 7, 1938. That morning, a uniformed guard escorted Martin from his prison cell through a series of underground passages towards the courtroom by his own admission. After so long in prison, Niemöller was overcome with loneliness and with terror. What would become of him? What would become of his family, of the church? What tortures awaited them all? The bold but meek and gentle Niemöller was struggling. Niemöller recounts the guard's face as they walked. It was impassive. He was silent as a stone. But as they exited the tunnel to ascend the final flight of stairs, he heard a whisper. At first, he didn't know where it came from. The voice was soft as a sigh, and then he realized that the officer was breathing into his ear the words of Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Niemöller comments that his temporary fear of men fell away, and the power of that verse restored his boldness and sustained him through his trial and through his years in the Nazi concentration camps. Last week, we introduced this section in 2 Corinthians 10 on spiritual warfare. We saw uh, that Paul starts out in 
verse 1, he says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul had known discouragement. Paul had known hardship. Paul had known sorrow. He had known fear. He feared even for his own life. We saw earlier in this uh, letter. But Paul knows there's going to be a spiritual battle ahead. He gets to chapter 10. He's, he's finished with teaching them about giving and all the things that he talked about before that. He knows that some of the church don't think very highly of him. Uh, he think, they think he's powerless. They think he's weak. Uh, they're not ashamed to talk about him behind his back. They'd question his authority. They had questioned his right to speak for God. They'd questioned his message, how he goes about his ministry, how he goes about instructing the church. They'd questioned his apostleship, his credentials as an elder. All were under attack. But even with all of that and, and the prevailing low opinion some had of him, he starts this section, as we saw last time, I urge you. He pleads with them in light of all the things he could have said. He comes gently and humil- uh, with hum- humility. And we saw that was really our first step, the place where we start when we're talking about spiritual warfare, whether it's with people or the spiritual realm of circumstances. We look at Paul and we see that this is his demeanor as he begins this whole thing. And the word indicates humility on Paul's part. And so we understand as Paul follows Christ, we, he told us to follow him. And we understand that's why we pull these things out as we see these examples. And then he says, I urge you by the meekness of Christ. And that word we see is used as a fruit of the Spirit. And this is the second instruction that we pull from Paul. And again, it has to do with his attitude when it comes to spiritual warfare. And it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It refers to power under control. This is the attitude that expresses itself in the patient endurance of offenses. And there it's, uh, it's, and there's been quite a few as Paul understands the church, and we understand that. Certainly, we've looked at it. And then the next words like it, he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's also fruit of the Spirit. Uh, this is instruction number three. It helps us with win spiritual warfare. It's a spiritual fruit of gentleness. We saw that it means leniency. It refers to patient submission in the midst of mistreatment, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of disgrace, without anger, without malice, without revenge. And even though you have the power to retaliate, this spiritual fruit says that you don't. That's what it means. And as we saw last time, we saw uh, these are the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means that they are characterized by every believer, not just Paul. But when we see what they look like in Paul's life, it gives us a better idea of what that's supposed to look like in our life. And, and we saw, too, as Paul uses Jesus and calls him in, nobody characterized these traits better than Jesus, which is why Paul says what he says. Jesus was humble. Uh, he certainly was uh, more powerful, nobody more powerful than Jesus, yet no one had better harness on that power. And no one had power under control better. No one had better judgment and discernment of the faults of others, certainly more than we do. Uh, but, and, and with Jesus, certainly the people around him, especially those crucifying him, he knew all their faults, and yet he showed more leniency. And we saw as we ended that section last time, we ended up in 1 Peter 2, uh, that God is pleased, we saw, as we saw that illustration, God's pleased when those fruits of the Spirit are present in you, when you suffer unjustly, when you endure it. And, and we saw, and the question we asked was, do you want to find favor with God, a special attention, a special preference from him to you? Well, this is what it looks like. Paul knew his master well enough to know uh, that this is how he's expected to start and how he has to approach the whole thing. And it's well-pleasing to God, and we saw that. When you can, when you can retaliate, but you don't, uh, when you're not angry and you believe you have a right to be, when, when, you, uh, when you do those things, uh, you have God's favor. And when when you avoid the dislike and the resentment and the desire for justice and revenge or whatever it is. And this is a level of spiritual maturity uh, that when you're mistreated, when you are misrepresented, when you're gossiped about, when you're slandered, 
And people think they know you, but they don't, and so you're reviled, and, and all that stuff's happening to Paul at the hands of the church. When that happens to you, like Paul, you're the leader, and you follow the word of God in your leadership, and this is the stuff, this stuff is happening. You suffer quietly, see, and patiently, and you endure it. Scripture says God's delighted with that. That's well-pleasing to him, and he has a special fondness for you. And I think that that's where we'd all like to be, right? Rather than being right. And so when you think about spiritual warfare as it has to do with people, especially as a leader in the church as Paul was, he says, I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Jesus is his model, see. So no matter how much injustice he suffered, and Paul has suffered, no one suffered injustice as unjustly as Christ did. You know, the, the end of that passage says, you know, he was out sin and without deceit in his mouth suffered, but we, we have sinned, right? We've had deceit in our mouth, and, and yet we can still suffer unjustly at the hands of people. But Jesus suffered unjustly and was perfect, which makes his unjust suffering the worst type of suffering that there can be because there was no deceit, no sin. And Peter said right at the, at the very end that we, we're called for this purpose. It's the normal circumstance for the redeemed. In other words, God has a whole line of people lined up to make sure that you begin to react this way. And he's just going to wait for you to learn your lesson. See? Circumstances and people that will test your ability to not retaliate and test your ability to wait and not chase everything down. And when you do that, you become mature. See, And the fruit of the Spirit look full. And the Lord's pleased with that. And the church gave Paul, of course, plenty of opportunity to respond this way, at, like Hitler with Nehemiah. They, they undervalued him and, and, and interpreted his gentleness and his meekness as weakness. And Paul repeats their own words to them, and he says this. So he starts out, he goes, I, myself, I Paul, myself, urge you, I beg you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he says this, and listen to it, it's important. He says, I, who am meek when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when, you, when absent. And, and here's where Paul really begins to address the issues at hand. And here he's quoting them. And I think it's interesting, perhaps they said this to his face. It's possible, certainly, they were cruel enough to say something like that, that you're meek when you're face-to-face with us, but you're, you're bold when you're absent. Uh, or perhaps this comes from godly people who know that gossip and private conversations about their spiritual leader are not godly. And they passed it on to Paul. But either way, but especially if it's that last option where he found out from godly people, it's probably a surprise to his critics that he knows what they've been saying. But it doesn't appear that Paul is bearing a grudge. He's not coming uh, in somehow displaying his hurt feelings to them. We don't see that with Paul too often. Even though they said about him, he, he's real brave when he's a safe distance away. That's basically what they're saying. Oh, Paul's brave when he's, when he's far from us. You know, give him a quill and parchment, put a few miles between us. He's really fierce. But, uh, you know, bring him up here, and he's like that little dog behind the fence that barks and barks and barks, and then you open the gate, and he runs with his tail between his legs away from you. That's Paul. Not very unkind. Very unkind to say. Paul won't chase everything down face to face, but when he's insulated, then he's brave. So they're misunderstanding his compassion when he was there. Uh, They're misunderstanding the fruit of the Spirit that he's supposed to have, his hesitancy to chase everything down when he's there with them. It's a very cunning accusation, too, if you think about it. If you put yourself in this position... Uh, because no matter what you say, uh, what, what they say, it's very hard to answer. That's why the section takes so long and, and, and such complexity to it. If he tries to answer his critics and his position from a distance, they'll just say, oh yeah, look at that, see, that's what we expect. 
you know, he's really brave when he's far from us, but he won't say anything when he's close, you know, or, you know, if, uh, if he wants to meet with them while he's there and explain why he hasn't chased everything down, they'll say, see, we're right, you know, he's weak, he has to have a guilty conscience, that's, that's why he's so timid. Or if he actually says something bold, then they'll just say, see, he, he, is, uh, he walks in the flesh, just like we said. See? So he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. See? So, so how do you go about this type of spiritual warfare? What, do, you, do you answer? Do you defend yourself? What, what's, what's your answer to that? See, because no matter what he says, it could confirm their accusation. You know, if he gently points out that he's right, they'll just say, yeah, of course you're going to say that because it, it, it defends your position and exonerates you. If he deals with the issues, then they can use that to confirm their assessment of him. So he's, he's really in a, in a strange place. So he takes some time to explain how he's going to go about this. And he has to deal with it very carefully, and he does so in this section. Now look at verse 2, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. Follow along with me, if you would. It's an, an important section and one that lends to us a lot of understanding as we deal with uh, difficult times. Paul says this, he says, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul says, Paul says I said all of that, in other words, that I, I come to you with some meekness and, and, and gentleness of Christ, I come to you forbearing patience, I come to you enduring all the slander against me, I come to you with leniency, I come to you without anger, without malice, I come to you patiently, see, I said all of that so that if there are matters with which I must discuss with you, and if it seems to be authoritarian, you know, and I correct you, please don't diagnose tyranny or fleshliness, see. I'm just trying to reflect the mind of the humble yet assertive Christ, and we talked about that last time. Christ came as a bondservant, didn't he? But when he comes back, is he going to be a bondservant? He is not. He wants all to be redeemed. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But when he comes back, he's coming with a rod, isn't he? And those who don't obey the word will be put to death with the word. So Paul comes and just says, listen, you know, I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous. I'd rather not do that, but I will. And, and this instruction, of course, is number four, which helps us in spiritual warfare. And this is the character trait of courage. Paul brings courage to the whole issue. When all attempts at leniency and forbearance are exhausted, when all efforts of patience are eliminated, see, when the only thing left is to protect the truth and the church from gossips and slanderers, he's going to do it. And the whole idea uh, in the middle part of this verse is, I, I don't want to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. Paul says, I have a boldness. That's the verb thoreo. And it, the English doesn't capture it very well. It has to do with uh, warmth of words. In other words, um, I'm not shaking in my boots about the possibility. My blood's not running cold from fear. I have a boldness. It's like, I'm not, I'm not worried about this. This is not encroaching on my sleep. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I can do this. And then he says, with the confidence, pepothesis, it, it has to do with a sound assurance. It, it really is translated convictions. So he has a set of standards that function from and are rightly informed so he's not worried that he's going to find out he did something wrong. We saw the same word used early in this book, 2 Corinthians 1.15. He says, here's our word, in this, here's our word, confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. In other words, I have convictions. I'm assured, uh, and Paul is assured, he says, in his own heart that his ministry will be a blessing to him. He's not worried about that. He's not shaking in his boots about it. We see it again in Philippians 3, 4, illustrated. Though I myself might have, here's our word, confidence, even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If you think you're prepared 
to do this spiritual warfare, I'm more equipped than you are, and Paul's not worried about it. He has convictions. He knows that he's right. So he has an inner assurance that the Lord has prepared him appropriately for the ministry that's before him. That's the whole idea in Philippians 3.4. So both of those words together let his readers know that he is prepared for whatever comes. And those things have supplied his courage. So he says, uh, I propose, I reckon, logizomai is that's the word, I think through, I thought it out, I propose to be, uh, tomao, that I propose to be courageous. And, and that's the word for daring. I, I propose to be, I've thought through it, and I will be daring with you. And, and what does that mean? Well, it's to act without fear, regardless of the consequences. So he, he has confidence, and he has a boldness, and so he's going to be courageous. And at this point, with, with the health of the church at stake, Paul says, I'm really disregarding however it might come out, whatever you may do to me, uh, any personal safety preservation, that's, that's by the by. He's not worried about it. Now, just as a footnote, uh, foreshadowing this a little bit, and we'll look at this at the very end, but I did this for you when we were talking about giving. So when Paul talked about giving to the church in Corinth, did they give? And we saw that they did. But it's interesting to note that when Paul arrives in Corinth in Acts chapter 20, verse 2 through 3, he is, during his three-month stay there, able to write the letter to Romans, if you remember. And so in that letter, there's no allusion to local troublemakers, which is normal for Paul. Paul will say to the church, beware of such and such kind of people. But we don't see that in that letter. Um, And so... It's one of two things, I think, perhaps occurred with this letter. Number one, the letter did its work and the slanderers had come to their senses or had left the church. Or two, when Paul arrived, he was bold and corrected the issues just like he said he was going to do, and, and the same things happened. So one way or another, he was able to straighten the whole thing out. Uh, not, not comfortable for Paul, but he also he wasn't worried about it and he wasn't fretting about it. He just had to do what he had to do. And then the last part of verse 2 he says this, he says, I, need, I hope I need not be bold with the confidence which I propose to be courageous against, and here it is, uh, per- courageous against some. And, and that's really what this comes down to. This is the nature of most trouble in the church. Who's it directed to? It's directed to some. Not everybody. Although most who participate in this type of behavior and gossip and slander and the things that go on behind the scenes that nobody hears indicate that it's most people or many people or or they say stuff like this a lot of people think this same way too not just me see people do that a lot in the church Uh, likely the same thing they were doing in Corinth it's it's everybody Paul I mean everybody thinks the same thing about you right Uh, because they gossip and sometimes um, they're not reproved by other church members for gossiping uh, so it seems like everybody's on board that's kind of how it always looks see Paul had to deal with it no doubt everyone who's ever led a ministry has had to deal with that but it isn't actually the case. It's just some. It's a few that have hung on to this toxic current, a small minority. And what do these few have in common? Well, uh, those that ridiculed, that accused, that gossiped, it all has this, this undercurrent that Paul is fleshly. Paul acts in the flesh. It, it, our under-shepherd acts according to the world. Uh, they evaluate the situation as if Paul lives like the world. And that's what it says. It says... Um, they regard us, and that's again, is that logizomenos, uh, they've thought it through, and they think that um, Paul walks in the world, the uh, unredeemed humanness, that's how Paul acts towards people, and so that's their response, it's, it's synonymous with sinful desire, personal motivation, uh, for pride's sake, self-promotion, uh, that kinds of thing, see, or when Paul comes and he's firm, see, he's just being fleshly. He's just being fleshly because he acts that way. He has to talk in that manner. And it takes us, by the way, right to the heart of the conspiracy against him. Here it is at its core. 
they say he was a fake. They said he was selfish, indulgent, self-serving, morally motivated. We saw in 1 Corinthians that they accused him of just trying to line his pockets. And those are all terrible things to say. So that's what the church, some, a small minority in the church, this toxic current, says about Paul. And Paul says of himself, he says, uh, I come in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and I beg you. See? So they're on opposite poles. Is it likely Paul's going to be able to convince them by again going through this? Well, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? Because there's always that toxic stream that a few hang on to and, and a false narrative everybody keeps repeating. But it doesn't mean it's true. And Paul has to deal with this. And this is hard stuff. And remember earlier in the letter, he had to address this issue in 2 Corinthians 1.12. Just a few illustrations here to help the Bible explain the Bible. He says, uh, my conscience is clear that we've lived in holiness and godly sincerity. In other words, what are they saying about him? That he's ungodly. He doesn't live a holy life. He, he walks as the world walks, see? But no, Paul says, my conscience is clear. We, we have lived in holiness and godly sincerity. And, and in chapter 2, verse 17, he says much the same thing. He says, uh, for we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. He says, I'm not like that. God is my witness. And, and Paul begins to tell them how they can determine whether or not the, the undercurrent is true. He goes, what do I do with the Word of God? Am I peddling the Word of God like you would sell a used car? Is that what I sound like when I teach the Word of God? He goes, no, I, I teach with sincerity, with purity. As, as from God, we speak, the, speak in Christ in the sight of God. God's my witness. How, how can you determine what's truth because there was so much falseness going on about Paul? How about um, 2 Corinthians 4.2? Again, he says much the same thing. Paul hates to do this. But he says, listen, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. How can you tell Paul's telling the truth? How can you tell Paul doesn't walk according to the world? Well, what does he do with the word of God? And he's put away those things that are hidden because of shame. The things that will be in your life, and if somebody finds out your shame, Paul says, I put them away. So where's the sin issue? If there's a sin issue, point it out. Paul says, I've already put those things away. And think about what I do with the Word of God. I'm not adulterating it. I'm not creating a, a, a synthetic situation where people will respond somehow and everything will look like it's supposed to look. I'm not getting rid of the parts that I don't like and just giving you a feel-good type of sermon. Paul says, I preach the full Word of God, the manifestation of the truth. And in that, I commend myself to everybody's conscience in the sight of God. He's given them tools to figure out how it's supposed to work, and most of them did take those tools. But there's still this, this undercurrent. My private life, Paul says, is the same as my public life. And teaching the, word, teaching the word exonerates me. See, I've renounced those things so my life won't come to public shame. Same thing, 2 Corinthians 7, 2. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. Show me where we've wronged somebody, how we corrupted somebody, how we took advantage. This is, but this is the typical kind of attack, see? Paul said it made very, you know, what Paul said very, very little difference to that few. Of course he's going to say that because that just defends his position. Supports his own opinion of himself. In Galatians, Paul told the church, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, marked us, and the life which I now live, here's the words, in the flesh, okay, not according to the flesh, he's not living a life according to the flesh, which is a day-to-day -day impersonation of the world, the life I live in the flesh, in other words, as I walk around in my humanness, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me, so I don't live according to the flesh, it's been crucified with Christ, and I'm not perfect, but the flesh is no longer the master, see? Now, look at verses 3 and 4, and we'll see what Paul says about that, because he's going to talk about that very thing. So they say he lives according to the flesh. Now, look at verse 3 in your copy of God's Word. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, 
We do not war according to the flesh, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So we saw Paul brings humility, he brings meekness, he brings gentleness to the spiritual battle, and those are important. And, and we just saw that he brings courage, uh, because you can't be an effective soldier if you don't have courage. And, and those things work in conjunction with this number five uh, that helps us win at spiritual warfare, and this is the character trait of capability. You can go as far as you can trying to seek peace, but when we went through the letter in Romans, you remember this? Perhaps you remember when we went through it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, and you can probably quote this uh, with lots of experience, he says this to the church in Rome. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, what's the rest of it? Be at peace with all men. Paul understood that, didn't he? He ignored a lot of the stuff that went on. He didn't respond to it. He didn't chase everything down. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You go as far as you can go with peace. But sometimes, as a leader, as a soldier in ministry, it's not peace at any cost. At some point, he has to come back to the church like he's doing in, in verse 10, and he has to deal with the issues. Some things have to be corrected, because without correcting them, the entire ministry suffers over and over. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, and this is important, turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Just hold your finger here. There's a couple of places here that I, I think it's important to look at. So Paul's dealing with difficult people. He's going to have to come in. He can't ignore it anymore they, when the backbiting and the gossiping and all that goes on but under, the, under, the, under the radar. It's just kicking the church ministry to pieces over and over again. Okay? So he knows what's going on in Corinth. It's not peace at any cost. Paul is teaching Titus. Now, Titus is a man who had a pivotal part in the ministry here at Corinth, isn't he? He's the one that took the sorrowful letter, remember? Paul sent him ahead, and he comes and takes the letter to Corinth, and Paul's worried about him because he's, he's done, Paul's done everything he can in the flesh uh, with, his, with his efforts, rather. He's done everything he can with his efforts to make a difference in this Corinthian church. They're still rebelling against him. He writes a sorrowful letter. He sends it with Titus. Then he can't catch up with Titus. He doesn't know where Titus is, and we looked at all of that. He finally catches up and realizes the church has repented, and he's very grateful for that. So here's Titus. Paul's going to instruct him in his own spiritual battle, and so he says this here in verse 8 to Titus. He says, listen, Titus, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. In other words, I'm going to give you the truth about this, and then I want you to proclaim it uh, as truth. Don't worry about it. This is how it's going to work, and you can, you can be confidently assured this is how it's going to be. So that, he says, those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. In other words, Titus, this is how you tell who are godly and who are not. These things are good and profitable for men. In other words, don't worry about these folks, okay? These folks, uh, and there are always many, many, many like this, who are blessing to the pastor, they're blessing to the church, they're faithful in their ministry, they give, they, all this, these people are in, in the fabric of the ministry, they're making sure it happens. Those kind of folks, don't worry about them, okay? They're, they're for you. Even though they may not say anything, this is a good thing. If you can see this stuff in their life, it's good. He says, nine, or verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, people who always love controversy. There's always a few of those. Over and over, same, kind of, same people, just a new topic. Paul tells Titus, avoid them and those topics. And that's keeping peace, isn't it? You just avoid them. You don't have to, you don't have to talk about them, find some commonality with them, okay? In other words, pursue peace. Now mark this, what happens if you can't avoid it any longer? If a few keep pursuing uh, controversy and strife and disputes, here's what you do, Titus. This is, this is the start of the battle, okay? So he's giving him uh, some ammunition. Here's what you have to do. Remember, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So what do you do? Eventually, you're going to have to wait in there. Verse 10, here it is. 
reject a factious man after the first and second warning. Now, I'll just tell you, after pastoring 28 years, nobody wants to do that, okay? And Paul didn't want to do it, and no doubt Titus didn't want to do it, okay? That's spiritual warfare, right, at, right in the heart of it. And that's where the health of the church is more important than peace. And you have to have courage, and you have to be capable. You have to know what to do, and then do it. And then take comfort from this, Paul says, knowing, here's verse 11, that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. He's like, listen, if this is constant, constant difficulty, constant sowing discords, constant controversy, always something coming up, this person, after you corrected him a second time, just reject him, put them out. Why? Because they're perverted and sinning, and they're self-condemned. You may not know this, Titus, but this is what's going on behind the scenes, and this is why they are what, like they are. And so he gives Paul some, or t- Titus some confidence, and this is precisely what Paul's doing, isn't it? He's coming to Corinth, he's he's put up with all of the stuff he's put up with, he comes with meekness, he comes with gentleness, he comes in humility, but he comes to straighten it out, and he says, listen, I hope I don't have to be courageous and be bold as I may have to be with some of you uh, who think I walk according to the flesh. And and now, here's Paul, and he has to correct the situation, and he has to engage in battle, uh, and you may have this great courage to get into the fray, beloved, but unless you are capable and you know what your responsibility is, and you know what the scriptures say, and you can put those together, your courage will not help you. You're just going to get slain. And there's plenty of guys with tons of courage, and they don't understand how they're supposed to go about it, and they just get slain by churches over and over again. Okay? Capability means this. You have to have the weapons, and you have to have the ability, and then mark this, you have to know who the enemy is. Who the ultimate enemy is. And that's exactly what we find out in verses 3 through 5. Uh, without capability, courage is wasted. And, and you know this from your own reading because I've used this as an illustration before, but you remember um, Stephen Ambrose has written a number of books about this, but the greatest generation of World War II, many of those guys when they were still alive were asked um, how they did what they did on D-Day, how'd they, how'd they go, how'd they go on shore on D-Day knowing they're running right into a hail of bullets, how did, how did they fight in the Battle of the Bulge, um, you know, 102nd Airborne, you know, trapped and, and still fought down to the last couple of rounds of ammunition. How, how, did, they, how did they pursue the European and, and Pacific campaigns uh, just with a boldness and, and just seemed so brave? And almost to the guy, they would say, I'm no more courageous than the next guy. Here's how I got through. I had a job to do, and I knew what I was supposed to do, and I was competent to do it, and I just went and did the job. They didn't just run blindly up on the beach hoping to win the day. They were trained and capable. They knew where they had to go, and they, they went and did that, and they did the job they were trained to do, to the best of their ability, see? And that's how the day was won. And see, Paul knows this, see? He knows that his master required that he manifest spiritual gifts. But he also knows he's going to have to have courage. And he also understands the enemy. See, when there's trouble in the church, it's always the work of the enemy, whose purpose remains unchanged throughout the ages. See, to thwart the work of the gospel, to quench the work of the Holy Spirit, derail sanctification, break the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. The, the, the deceiver is always about those things, see? Which is why when people get caught up in that kind of thing, when they're always, always you know, gossiping, deceiving, you know, backbiting, all the, all the kinds of things, the undercurrent, that just kicks the ministry to pieces. Why? Because it interrupts one of those things or more, see? So Paul knew his enemy, and his weapons are strong, and he has resolve and purpose, and, and, and Paul told Timothy how to respond to spiritual warfare in Ephesus. Look, look there, if you will. It's another great ex- illustration. Another one of Paul's sons in the faith. He's going to give him some great uh, equipment to work with. He's going to equip him for the difficulty that he's having in Ephesus. Look at 2 Timothy 2.23. Hold your finger. Look at 2 Timothy 2.23. 
So he's going to give Timothy some understanding here. Give him, he's going to encourage him. He's going to equip him uh, so he's capable. He says in verse 23 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculation knowing that they produce quarrels. So just stop right there. There are always people who want to do that. Don't get drawn into that stuff, okay? You don't have to chase everything down because it's going to make you look just like them. That's what we see in verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. In other words, you don't have to argue with everybody who has a problem with you. Just tell Timothy, just, just let some of it go. That's, that's peace, isn't it? When you, we're not arguing with everybody who has a problem with you. That's just you're pursuing peace as best as you can. Find some common ground. You don't have to do what they do. And then, and then that's what we see in verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So what do I do, Paul? What do I do with this whole thing? Because this is hard. What's he say? But be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong. Okay, there's some equipment, right? Be kind to everybody. This is, you know, spiritual gifts made manifest. Able to teach, patient when wronged. So these are the fruit of the spirits in play, and we saw some of those already, didn't we? But sometimes you can't always live in peace because there are some things you eventually have to deal with. And then look at what he says in verse 25. With gentleness... Again, this is the same fruit of the Spirit that Paul brought to the table. Didn't he say, I come in the meekness and gentleness of Christ? So with gentleness, this is the one Jesus portrayed, leniency, that's what that is. But even that leniency, what? With gentleness, what's the next word? Correct. We're like, oh, well, you've you got to correct. I mean, you must be walking in the flesh. I mean, you've you got to tell somebody they're wrong. I mean, how, how, what right do you have to tell somebody wrong? Well, I have courage, and I'm equipped, and then I have to say it, see? And sometimes you do, and this is what he tells Timothy. He says, with gentleness, correct those who are in, here it is, opposition. There will be some who will oppose you, he says to Timothy. And there already are, and that's why Paul's writing it. Uh, no doubt Timothy has had some interaction with Paul. He goes, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps, because there's always a right side. It's not like every idea is equal, Okay, you would think that in the church, though, from time to time, that you know, my preferences are just, just as good. My, my, my idea is just as good. I don't feel like doing it this way. This is not what I'm comfortable with, and I know what the Word of God says. That's what we should do, but I'm not comfortable with that. See? Well, I'm sorry. That's, that's not the right position, see? So with gentleness, correct, he says, those who are in opposition, and then mark this. This is important. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. So they're wrong. And what do they have to do? They have to same thing we have to do when we're wrong. What? Repent. It's a word that's absent a lot in our life, but it should be the pattern of our life. We came to faith by repenting, didn't we? And confessing our sin, and that becomes the regular pattern of our life. Isn't that the point of coming to the table in communion? To examine our life, repent of the things that have broken the fellowship, and ask for forgiveness to be restored? That's precisely what we, that's why we celebrate the table. So he says, pray that God will grant them repentance. You have to correct them with gentleness, because they oppose you. And that will lead to the knowledge of the truth. So they'll come to an understanding, perhaps if God grants them repentance, a knowledge of where they need to be. Verse 26, and they may, mark this, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's such a scary thing, isn't it? Paul says to Timothy, there are going to be some in the church who are going to oppose you, and you're going to have to, in gentleness, teach them and pray that the Lord will grant them repentance because they've been held captive by Satan to what? Do his will. And what's his will? Well, support the work of the gospel, quench the work of the Holy Spirit, derail sanctification, break the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, kick, kick the ministry apart, make it struggle and stagger around a little bit, 
That's precisely what happens, see? They've been captured by Satan to do his will, and you ask the Lord that they may come to their senses and to the knowledge of the truth. In, in that respect, will be released from that captivity. There's an enemy, and he's good at what he does, see? And he always, that's always the undercurrent. And that minority that continues in opposition to Paul, the one that was in opposition to Timothy, and the one that was in opposition to Titus, they fall into the same category. And continue to gossip and backbite and, and sow discord and, and argue and whatever. There's always people in the church like that, see? They're being held captive. And that's a serious thing. And Paul knew that it requires courage and capability to deal with it. So back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. So Paul says this, so what do I do? How do I come into this? He's telling the church this is what it's going to look like. This is how we determine that all ideas are not the same. We we walk, for we walk in the flesh. We're not walking according to the flesh. We're still human. But we don't war according to the flesh. We don't war like the world wars. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. fortresses. So Paul says, I know you propagate this gossip that I walk according to the flesh. I'm fleshly in my morals and motivated by the world. But he switches it up here. He just says this. You know, he says, we walk in the flesh. In other words, I'm still in my, what, mortal body. I'm walking around in the flesh. He denies the accusation that he's corrupt, but he agrees with the reality that he's human. He's not perfect, no glorified body yet, but he's walking as a human. And the spiritual battle I'm going to fight with you, Paul says, is not according to the flesh. In other words, I'm not bringing worldly weapons to fight with you. So I'm not going to get into some kind of intellectual battle with you. I, I'm, you know, the weapons I'm fighting with won't be stamped with duplicity. In other words, maybe that's what the Word of God says, but, you know, that's not what we've always done. That's what people say. You know, or, or that's not my preference, and I don't feel comfortable with that, so I'm going to do it this other way. People say that all the time, too. Or, or I don't like what you're doing, so I'm not going to do it. Those are the kinds of things worldly people bring to the table all the time inside the church. And Paul says, I'm not fighting a war with you that way. I'm not going to get in that discussion with you. The weapons of worldliness of the flesh that always make their way into the church is human reason and human wisdom and arguments of rationalism, human preferences, things that we've already mentioned, strategies and ingenuity and organization and skill and eloquence that's what they loved in Corinth and they eloquence you have to be a really good speaker we're not going to re- we're going to reject you if you're not and certain personality types right and cleverness and and religious showmanship and philosophical and psychological speculations about why we do what we do artificial atmospheres that are created in the church to to accomplish some certain thing see all human approaches impotent weapons, Paul says, I'm not coming to you, I'm not having this discussion with you about this kind of thing, okay? These are all human things. Paul says, I'm not going to use any of those. And he says in verse 4, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And that that verse 4 could probably be taken as a parenthetical statement. Verse 3, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. And he could skip right over to verse 5. He says, for we are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So verse 4, I think, is just parenthetical. It gives some more information. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Parentheses, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul does this a lot. He says, just remember, you know, the weapons that we're going to, this is what they're good for. And then he says, we're destroying, present active indicative, speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so they make perfect sense. Paul's carried along to add some emphasis. The weapons I'll use are divinely powerful. 
not going to get in arguments with you about your preferences, about what you think should be done, all that kind of stuff. We're just going to follow what the Word of God says, and this is what we're going to do, and I'm just bringing this to the table. Paul's gone into spiritual battle before. He's taught others to do it. We just looked at some of them. He doesn't come with worldly arsenal for worldly motives. He knows he's striving against unseen power. And he's availed himself of what he describes in Ephesians 6, 12 through 13, which we'll read in just a minute. The whole, what? Armor of God. So Paul is going to open up a campaign, if you will, against adversaries who, by their efforts, interrupt the work and the mission and the purpose of the church, and they won't come up under him, and they, they won't surrender, and they won't run. And at this point, so, so the remainder of the letter will show Paul in action, if you will, in enemy territory. The few that oppose him, that's where he's going in. Now, we're going to finish up verse 4 today, which may be parenthetical, but it serves a purpose of being informative. Paul says this, for the weapons of our, he uses this word, warfare, stratia, that warfare is the noun stratia, it's where we get our word strategy. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You know, Paul says, listen, I, I'm not matching wits with you to see who's smarter. I'm not comparing your preferences with you if it's, if it's as if they're all equal. They're not. Just because you don't feel comfortable about it, I, I'm, that's not, that doesn't bother me. I'm bringing a strategy here and I have weapons that are ready, and I'm equipped, and I have courage. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and we'll look at this more next time, Lord willing. But Paul says this. He says, as he talks about spiritual warfare, he kind of gives, the, he gives us the understanding of where all spiritual warfare ultimately comes from. We've seen it already, the undercurrent that goes on with those who cause problems in the church, and they've been taken captive. But here he says this. He says, our struggle... So this warfare that we're in isn't against flesh and blood. Ultimately, it's not, is it? I mean, it's manifested in flesh and blood most of the time, and the people who line up who are going to make you more like Christ, and you're going to be gentle, and you're going to be humble, and you're going to be, those, those people are flesh, but ultimately it is a struggle against spiritual things. But against the rulers, and against the powers, and against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in heavenly places. In other words, the whole system of man is dominated by the spiritual plane, isn't it? Prince of the power of the air has temporary dominion here, doesn't he? In fact, the whole book of Revelation is about the transfer of the correct titles and the correct names and the correct dominion from the temporary one to the eternal one. The one who made the world gets the title of the world back to him again. And all titles get given to the right person. I love C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. He goes, peace, Everybody will get their right titles. Everybody gets their right positions. It's all going to be returned like it's supposed to be. Peace. Don't worry about it right now. And here Paul says this. Listen, this is all dominated by this man's system. Verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. In other words, I've equipped you. I've got stuff here for you so that you can be equipped to do what you're supposed to do. Verse 14 says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. In other words, you're going to have to know what you're supposed to know. You can't just kind of wing your way through and hope you got it right. It's going to spend time in the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You should know this. I tell this to you all the time. With all what? Wisdom. You're going to have to know the truth. The truth is important. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's practical righteousness and positional righteousness, right? You are right before the Lord, and that breastplate is going to protect you. It's going to protect your heart, which is the, the seat of all your thoughts. It's where you, you, you ponder everything, okay? And having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. You know the answer, which is the good news, and you know how to give it. 
If you want to be prepared for spiritual warfare, these are the kinds of things that will be true about you. These are all available to you. Everyone has this and have these options available to them. It's not reserved for some certain person or certain group of people. Everyone can walk around this way. And if you're in a warfare, which if you're a believer, you are, this is how you want to be equipped. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Will opposition come to you? Yes. Will you doubt yourself without a doubt? What do you do? The shield of faith, I know what the word says, I know what it, what it means and why it means this to me, why, why it means this, and this is what, how I'm supposed to respond. That's my shield. All right, the arrows come up. You're just, you know, you're just uh, a bunch of hypocrites. You know, you're, you're, uh, uh, you're very narrow-minded. You don't know what you're talking about. You mean, th- if you weren't around, we'd be much better off. You know, those kind of things, right? So you just kind of, you put the shield up, you understand what the word of God says, and you understand that God's always right, and he's going to be proven right. And that's your shield of faith, and you're okay with it, all right? You have, to be, you have to have the truth. You have to understand what you believe and why you believe it. You have to know what the gospel is, and then that shield of faith will extinguish those flaming arrows of the evil one. And verse 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation, which, which assures what? That you are where you need to be. You are redeemed. It, salvation belongs to you. The Lord looks at you like his own child. And the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon we have, which is what? What does the Word of God say? That's it. And Paul was completely confident that as he came in, he wasn't talking about preferences. He wasn't going to talk about what you like and what you don't like and whatever. What does the Word of God say? That's the only metric that we have, okay? You don't get to figure out other ones. Well, I just don't like that, so I'm going to do it this way. That's not one of the options, see? And then he says, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. You're going to need help and encouragement constantly. It's one of the reasons why we come together, beloved, and the first day of the week, we, we encourage one another, we bless one another, we, we are equipped, we're restored, we, we're encouraged, right? And, and you pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So not only are you praying and asking the Lord for you to be faithful in these areas where he's brought this battle to you and brought you to the battle, he wants you to pray for the others around you who are also in battle, right? All the saints, that's where all the saints are supposed to be. So Paul says, this is how I'm coming, see? I know what my job is. I know what I'm supposed to do. He says early in, in, in Ephesians, we're just kind of in with this illustration. Early in Ephesians, he says, I know, I know what I'm supposed to do. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he goes, and the Lord gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why, why did he give Paul to the church? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Why did he give elders to the church? For the equipping of the saints for the works of service. Why did he give some as evangelists and some as pastors, teachers? For the equipping of the saints for the works of service. Those who lead the church are to equip people of the church to walk in holiness, fill with the Spirit, know what the Word says, be equipped for good works, and do them. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's, that's the purpose of the equipping, right? That's the purpose of the teaching of the Word of God, so that we all attain this certain uh, maturity to a mature man. That's what it says. To the ma- measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. A duplicate, if you will, a reprint of what Jesus looks like. As a result, so once that happens, we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every Wind of doctrine, right? Everything that comes along throws you off course. You can't keep a straight course because the waves are battering you around. You, you, you haven't understood what you're supposed to do, see? And then you're battered around by every teaching that comes along. And everything, sometimes somebody says something. Oh, well, maybe that's true, right? And the trickery of men and the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Because men are always about that, aren't they? 
but speaking the truth in love. And that's always it, isn't it? That's what Paul's coming to do in Corinth. I'm going to speak you the truth in love. Why? Because I love the church, he says, and I want to see it grow, and I'm tired of seeing it kick itself to pieces. So we're going to fix this. Speaking the truth of love, we're going to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, you get plugged in, you get mature, you start getting th- stop getting thrown around, everything doesn't, doesn't give you a problem anymore, and you start plugging in, and your joint supplies, and their joint supplies, everybody's joint supply, what the body's supposed to do causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And I sum that up, but, you know, that's not happening in Corinth, because Right now, Paul warns him, there's some people causing trouble. There's just a few, but I'm going to come and I'm going to straighten it out. I'm going to make sure that this is what's happening. And the mission of the church is paramount. His authority is clear, as it is with all who have the same job. You want to go to battle? I'll go to battle, Paul says. I'm going to give you a warning. I don't like to fight you. I don't want to have to come and be hard with you. I don't fight on your level. I'm just going to tell you what the Word of God says. And life and ministry for Paul was war, and it's war for everybody. And we don't have to Fight it, though, with human weapons. We are human, but we don't use human weapons. It's a war. It's always a war. We're always engaged in it. The kingdom of darkness is our opponent, ultimately. And the problems that we have are as a result of that. And we're fighting for the truth and the preservation and proclamation of the truth. And we're fighting for the honor of Jesus Christ. And we're fighting for the salvation of sinners. And we're fighting for the virtue of the saints. And, and that is always a struggle. And so chapter 10 to 13 is going to be very important for us, very pertinent as it deals with these issues, whether it's bodily issues or, or it's individual issues or it's things that are said or whatever it is, Paul's going to give us some equipment so that we can do it right and then we go forward and do that, all right? And that is our time is up and so I'd like you to bow with me and we'll dismiss in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. It's so, it's so wonderful to be together and study your word together and to see what you have to say to us and to mutually encourage each other and to be encouraged by the fact that we're all in a struggle and it's all has us its source the evil one ultimately either taking captive those who even belong to christ or or they don't belong to christ at all and causing trouble in our lives or in the church or whatever it is a difficulty that we have to deal with it's part of this life where the temporary dominion belongs to the evil one and many are in that camp so, Father, we pray that we'll be wise about this. So it's encouraging just to know that this is the case. We're not discouraged because we don't understand what's going on. We can be encouraged because we understand this is the case and we should expect this. And as uh, Peter told us, we were even made for this, the difficulty and the hardship and suffering unjustly because uh, this is what Christ did and he suffered as an example to us. And so, Lord, uh, that by itself can be encouraging. But knowing also, Father, that uh, you've given us the equipment, the spiritual Uh, weaponry and the protection so that we can walk through this world and be actively engaged in making sure the kingdom can come. We wait on your son's return, Father. We're grateful for that. Someday uh, your son will return and catch us away and then return later and won't be a bondservant. But Almighty God in the flesh able to bring down fortresses and throw down everything that's raised up against the knowledge of God and every enemy put under his feet. And so, Father, we pray that with joy and we then can say with great joy in our heart, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.